This is the Deep Color podcast series. Deep Color is an oral history project that features artists and arts professionals discussing their work, ideas, and lives, offering listeners a forthright and unique understanding about the process, experiences, and people behind the artistic pursuit. My name is Joseph Hart. I produce and facilitate this series. These recordings are casual, long-form, and unscripted. Deep Color is supported by The Armory Show as it celebrates its 25th anniversary. The Armory Show is New York City's premier art fair and leading cultural destination for discovering and collecting the world's most important 20th and 21st century art. The fair features presentations by leading international galleries, innovative artist commissions, and dynamic public programs. Since its founding in 1994, The Armory Show has served as a nexus for the art world inspiring dialogue, discovery, and patronage in the visual arts. This episode profiles Sally Talent. Sally is the incoming director of the Queens Museum in New York and curated the platform section of this year's Armory Show. Talent was director of the Liverpool Biennial for eight years, overseeing four editions of the UK's largest international festival of contemporary art and a year-round program of public art commissions. Prior to this, Sally served as the head of programs at Serpentine Gallery in London, where she developed a roster of exhibitions, architecture, education, and public programs. This conversation was recorded at the 2019 Armory Show in the Media Lounge on Pier 94. So that's sort of the function of all of this. Now, we are here to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the Armory Show. Um, and we're over here in the Armory 25 section, um, across from Art Forum, and next door to the art newspaper. It's very arty. Yes, uh, but when we got, we had a chance to talk yesterday, uh, uh, which was a nice little icebreaker, and you and I were both trying to remember what we were doing in 1994, which is when the first Armory show took place. Back then it was called the Gramercy Park International Art Fair uh, at the Gramercy Park Hotel. But where were you in 1994? Yeah, so I was in the southwest of England. Yes. I was um, I was working as a, a teacher and an artist, or an artist first, really. Yeah. And, I mean, I looked back to see what I was doing, and I think I'd sort of started curating as well a little bit, but we didn't call it curating then. I was just basically, I was working together with a group of artists, all of whom made performance work, Mm -hmm. including me. And uh, I was the only one with a driver's license. And also, I was the only one who could be bothered to raise any money. So I was the curator, Ah, basically. And if you weren't being called a curator then, what were you sort of It wasn't called anything. An organizer? No, I I mean, it was just, there would be like, Sally, um, let's go to France and have an exhibition. So then we would drive there and do it. And it's just, I found I had organizing skills. And I was teaching at the time, so I was enjoying that as well. It's like working with other artists, like developing artists, watching people, you know, like learn about art. And actually I was, um, you know, involved in quite a lot of um, festivals, performance art festivals and things. And I would always be helping other people do their work. You know, I'd be the one that'd be like, oh, I'll get it for you. And I would help people because I liked doing that. Mm -hmm. So then I think probably at that time is when I became aware there was a curating course at the Royal College of Art that started 
And I, I read about it and I thought, oh, that, that's kind of what I do. And it wasn't called curating, it was called Visual Arts Administration. Visual Arts Administration. Yeah. What a boring Which title. I, I prefer it. Right. No disrespect to all the arts administrators Well, it's what there. I do. You know, yeah. I'm all an organizer mm -hmm. and I do a lot of administration, typing. I can't actually type properly, but I, I do a lot of typing. Sure. And uh, so I thought, I actually think that's what I might want to do. I didn't really know, but I had by then now, probably together with colleagues, you know, like artists organized exhibitions, organized different sure. shows. So, uh, so that's what I was doing. And I was living in uh, between... Devon, because so, I had been working at Dartington College of Arts, which is a very radical institution, um, where I had been educated slash radicalized. And, uh, and then I was working and teaching in Bristol, Exeter, and Bath, and London. So at that time, I was driving a lot. Yeah, you're, you, were, you were traveling. Yeah, and I, you know, it's like hard in those days, and making work as well. Yeah, wow. Uh, so... Do you remember your, the first time you participated at the Armory Show, whether it was as a, a viewer or a curator? When, when did you first land into this little part of the, of the art world? I didn't even come to New York until I was quite grown up. So I think the first time I came here was in, I need to try and get it right, 1997. Okay. Which is a long, you know, like I was already kind of, but I just had never had the opportunity to come sure. here. And uh, I think mostly I focused on going to exhibitions. Not like art, galleries? Yeah. yeah. And artists' studios and just stuff I found. I didn't really at that point go to art fairs. And then, of course, as I got more involved uh, in the curatorial sphere, then I realized that I had to go to art fairs as well. Sure. So I did. Yeah. I mean, because there weren't so many art fairs, to be honest, at that time. They were different. I was aware of the Armory, of course. Um, but I, I, uh, I, I definitely focused much more on um, going, going to small artist spaces and artist-run spaces sure, at the time. Sure, sure. Fast forward to the here and now. Mm. You were invited to curate the platform section this year. Yeah. Uh, talk about that process and maybe even from the beginning how you got invited and, and then the sort of work that it took to to get the ideas flowing and and, and pull it to start to pull it together so uh i met nicole berry um in chicago probably about five years ago when she was at expo sure. chicago she was directing that film and i had been invited there to do a talk uh together with a brilliant person called sarah herder who runs the graham foundation there and i did a talk very early in the morning about biennials, something like this. Uh, I didn't see her then for a long time. And then she called me and I was, I can remember I was installing the biennial in Liverpool and uh, running around. And she's like, can I speak to you? And I said, I'm really busy, I don't know. Anyway, so I spoke to her and she said, do you want to do this? And so I just said, yeah, all right. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> I thought, oh, I like Nicole. That sounds like fun. I had no idea what it would entail, to sure. be honest with you. Sure. So I just said yes. But then I said, I can't talk to you until I've opened the biennial. Like, just leave me be now. So then we had a little gap because I, I had to, like, open a biennial. 
And then I realized I'd sort of committed to doing something. And uh, and I thought it would be really easy to do because, not easy, mm-hmm. but I thought I would have the time. Because sure. at the time, I was opening a biennial that was going to close in October. Was this in Liverpool? This was in Liverpool. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, the Liverpool biennial. And I, uh, I thought, oh, that's a good time for me to be in New York. And they'll bring me to New York and I'll meet loads of artists. And that'd be really brilliant. And I can be in New York for a week. So I thought it would be really exciting to do it. And then, of course, I after I'd said I would do it, then I got the job in New York. So it's been a really uh, much more intense period for me than I was expecting. Sure, sure. Um, it's a g- great example of uh, a relationship or an interaction with someone that took year that, that yeah. took place four or five years ago yeah. that led to an opportunity yeah, in the future. I mean, that is really how it goes. Yeah. I think it's important to kind of remind ourselves that that's how these things work sometimes it's a slow process well and you learn like you meet people and you learn what they do because you see them in action over time sure i mean you know like also because it was the 25th edition i've never done an art fair before i mean this is i I, that's kind of untrue because like last year i did a selection of works at freeze but it was more like on a panel and we selected the works i wasn't so involved right but i've never commissioned work within the context of an art fair before so that was an interesting experience for me Let's talk about the show that you put on, you, yeah, you yeah. curated here. It's, it's called The Worlds of Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the origin of this idea. So I, uh, it's the 25th anniversary, as we know, that's why we're here, and uh, of the fair. And um, I wanted to find another anniversary. So I started looking into things that had happened that were significant. And there's loads of anniversaries every year. You know, there's always anniversaries. But I stumbled upon the uh, 1939 World's Fair in New York because I thought it was significant and uh, 70 years ago. And the reason I think it's significant is that the 1939 World's Fair happened uh, between two world wars. So after World War One, and really close to the beginning of, of World War Two. And um, it was a bringing together of people looking towards a hopeful future, right? And it was called World of Tomorrow. And I think there are some, I mean, unfortunately, I think there are some parallels between the political environment in which we operate today and and some of the constraints or some of the challenges that they were facing then. So a rise of populism, a rise of fascism, and a a growing uh, refugee crisis, uh, a kind of lack of tolerance. A lot of social unrest, a lot of volatility across the board. Exactly. So I, and then if you add to that... um, climate grief as I would uh, call it now like this idea that you know during the enlightenment in the enlightenment we had this idea of a hopeful future sure and we've lost that idea you know we understand that the planet is in trouble and we need to do something and that and in fact it might be too late for us yeah you know so how do you process that grief you know and I'm, I'm really fascinated by the reading and the and what I'm understanding around that plus we have a really urgent and real refugee crisis in the world right now people are dying and people are unable to move across borders and so i felt like somehow i wanted to to highlight those parallels politically and then to say you know how do we not become paralyzed is it possible that you you know because that's all very depressing right sure but it's true sure um so but how do you not stop how do you continue in the face of that and what kind of institutions organizations structures do we need in order to make things possible in the world and for me there's a big difference between optimism and hope so hope is like action based much more and optimism is like you can just be optimistic doesn't matter if it really happens i want to see action so um so i think artists uh and writers and poets and curators sometimes are brave enough to make things in the world 
and that's hard you know I think being an artist is a very difficult job because uh, because they have the burden of trying to represent our hopes and our fears and to touch the nerves and to to highlight what's possible or impossible in the world and you know that's a big demand of someone who gets paid so little actually yeah so I wanted to find artists who to me in their practices can uh, talk about like resilience and hope in the face of what we were describing before sure. and um, and each of the artists I've chosen to work with has um, a kind of different strategy and I think that there's you know that diversity of perspective is how we're going to get out of this problem that we're in agreed situation. agreed uh, there's nine artists from all over the world uh, participating in the platform section typically is uh, features large-scale installation based works we're, we're over in the little uh, deep color corner here but I do have some some photographs of some of the work that that is that is on view that you curated in uh, let's talk about this work. Okay. This is by uh, a, a wo someone named Tanya. Yeah, Tanya Candiani, uh, and she's a Mexican artist. You know, I started talking to her a while ago, and, uh, you know, with all of the artists, I explained this kind of thinking around the world's fair. And for Tanya, she got very interested in the kind of national representation that happens in those kinds of environments. And we actually found, or she... When I say we, I mean her. She found uh, this amazing recording of the uh, speech by the kind of Mexican delegation at the opening of the World's Fair, which is which is a speech about how grateful everyone is sure. for like to be able to present themselves. And so, um, what she's done is made these sculptures. They are um, kind of like spherical headdresses made of a very in, made actually by a traditional maker that that are uh, to be worn on the head. Of a, of a dancer mm -hmm. and these are inspired by or drawn from uh, traditional or vernacular dancing that happens in Pueblo now Okay. and they're based on birds so normally they're very very colorful and in this instance they're black and white mm -hmm. uh, they're quite a geometric pattern but they have a red line running through them and, and I mean that's quite interesting the red line because Tanya said the maker in, yeah, in the middle there the maker said to her I'm happy to make them black and white for you but I have to have a line of red in there because it represents blood and we cannot have no life in these headdresses. Oh, it's very beautiful. Interesting, yeah. And so um, so the traditional the, the traditional dance of Quetzales, which is a, a dance of gratitude and petition, this is important, involves a lot of bowing. And, uh, and, and I think, you know, we talked a lot about the idea that um, right now there is a very tense relationship between Mexico and the US. Yes. And so to create a work that is about gratitude and petition, mm -hmm. thank you so much, it's yeah. so great to be here, yeah. is a very political act, I think. For sure. And so the dancers in this video, so the, the, the headdresses are attached to yeah, the wall. Yeah, there's two, there's two, the two headdresses are mounted to the wall. Yeah. Uh, they almost read like targets or eyes. Eyes, yeah, like owl's eyes. Uh, for the viewer, but then to the right of that on another wall is a, is a video. And so on the video, you see two dancers uh, with the headdresses on performing, and they interact in a very beautiful way. Now, normally when, normally when this dance happens, it's quite fast and, and kind of uh, colorful. Yes. Uh, but in this case, she slowed it right down. And it's actually very beautiful. It almost looks like a kind of, I don't know, like a Dadaist performance or yeah. something yeah, very, yeah. very... Uh, there are moments where the uh, headdresses cross, and they create almost like a kinetic artwork. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's an optic effect when yeah, those exactly, patterns exactly. Uh, uh, kind of screen over each other, yeah. for sure. 
Uh, and then let's shift to this work. This is by Ryan Gander. And it's a, it's a large vertical piece, uh, kind of at the entrance of the fair. Um, tell me about this work. Okay, so Ryan Gander is a British artist. I've worked with Ryan a lot, actually. I've yeah. known him for a very long time. And um, he has, for a long time, been making a series of works which engage with um, modernism and the histories of modernism. And this particular work is a, a comic reinvention of an artwork um, by an artist, by Belgian abstract sculpture, actually, from the Dichetiel group called George Van Tongelu. Yeah, and he, he you, will, you will know that when you think about, and it was made in 1918, the original sculpture. Sure. So you will know that like, when we think of modernist sculpture, we think of these very hard-edged kind of serious. Right, sharp. Uh, Sharp-edged. Almost kind graphic, of graphic to take spaces. in. Yeah. yeah. And so what Ryan's done is he's taken the original work and he's scanned it, and then he's asked the computer to reconfigure it using ovoids and scale it up. So he's made a gigantic version of this work. And, um, but there's no hard edges on it. No, no, because it's like ovoid. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's all very, round. So it's all round, and then it's covered in these fluffy, bright blue balls. I don't know what they're for. Those are they toys? I, I was getting my nose up in there trying to figure them out. They looked like a, something that you might pick up in a craft store. I'm not yeah. quite sure the origin of them. Yeah. But you know, there's thousands of them uh, mounted on the surface of the of the form. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and, and what they're a bright royal blue. Yeah. Uh, this thing has got to be 15 feet tall. It's very tall. Yeah. Um, and it lands a few different ways for me as a viewer. Oh, what, what do you think when you see well, it? Well, I, I saw something figurative in it, uh, oh, like yeah. someone sort of bending, and that's my own, you know, visual baggage coming in. But uh, you know, I mean, I think it's really. It, I mean, this is great to hear the history behind it. Well, you know what Ryan says about it is that he feels that if that artist was alive now, this is the kind of work he would make because ah. he was interested in like new technologies, what was possible. So he would have been working with computers, and he also, it. I think for Ryan, he's he he wants to challenge us to look at history with a sense of humor, because things because we see black and white photographs, we think it was also earnest and serious. Actually, it was pretty playful. Sure. Uh, you know, earlier you were speaking about the, the courageous act of being an artist mm. and, and the bravery it takes to put work out into the world. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about that. Let's note that we're not uh, uh, doctors or, or humanitarian workers, but there is something important to contributing to culture in this way. And a lot of us wear our hearts on the outside. We're really, I mean, there's so much vulnerability involved. Talk about the act of, of putting a work of art out there, as you see it as a point of view of a curator? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, for me, it's incredibly exposing, right? So when mm -hmm. you make an exhibition, I mean, you know, you're an artist. Yeah. So when you make an exhibition and you put in you, if, if you say you're a painter or something and you, you make some paintings and you, and you, you, you live with self-doubt, you're an artist. So in the studio, you're like, is it good? And your friends come around yeah. and say, do you like it? And they're like, yeah, it's great. And you think they're just lying to me because they're my <laughs> friends, et cetera, et cetera. And you're never sure, right? Even yeah. though you might feel it's right and it's balanced and it's good, you're always unsure. Because the self-doubt and the risk that people take is what drives amazing things to happen. But that's a big demand, in my opinion, mm -hmm. of a person. Mm -hmm. And then, not only that, because I think it's horrible, the, the structures of, of um, how we institutionalize art. So sure. I, think, I think what I really... I mean, I have worked with artists who do not come to the private views because they hate it so much because they have like practically a meltdown so like you put all your work on the sh on the walls and then the art world arrive head straight for the bar start drinking wine 
look at your work for two seconds and say fantastic congratulations it's amazing yeah. congratulations they haven't looked you spent like months and months making the work and then somebody writes a review where they've just read the press release and they regurgitate it and they've looked at a few pictures or something and i think that's damning and really difficult and so we all like live in this world but i think i think where it where it changes in my opinion is where you're able to encounter something and actually it does begin to resonate for you. So I would hope that like audiences, people, you know, like we're all people first and foremost. Yes. So that we have the empathy and the opportunity to actually look at something and open, be open enough to say, you know, what, what is, what am I looking at? How does that make, what does that communicate to me? And it's okay if it doesn't. Sure. You know, what, what does that do to my thinking about the world? And occasionally, you have those moments that, in my opinion, destabilize the world, and I love those moments. Sure. That's why it's worth it. That's why it's worth being an artist. But to, to achieve that, you need a lot of things to be right. Yeah. has to be the right time. You have to have had enough time, and it has to be the right conditions, and it has to be done in a dignified enough way. Yeah, well said. Uh, while we're talking about artists, uh, um, as a curator, you go on a number of studio visits. You spend a lot of time in artist studios. Talk about what you like to see in studio visits and um, uh, in terms of, uh, of how much work, the sorts of conversations you, you, you'd love to have with artists. You know, it's really weird. It's really weird because, again, it's the artists of people thing. So I think, like, sometimes I go into someone's art studio and I think, oh, God, they're really nervous. Sure. So, and they've, like, bought cakes and, and, it's, it's, and they're really stressed out. And I realize that actually we're not going to have the best conversation. You can tell pretty early straight on. Straight away. Yeah. So like I'll be like, should we go for a walk in the park? Ah. Right? Because I actually think sometimes you have a better conversation going for a walk than actually looking at, and then you can go look at the work afterwards. Yeah, that's really generous of you and, and, and some no, great awareness. No, but it's easier because I think that, um, you know what I want out of a studio visit? It's not just for someone to do a show and tell. I want to meet the person because in general, I'm going to be working with an artist, which is a person. Uh, and I'm, I'm not that kind of curator, actually, that's an art historian. So I come from a different background. Okay. So I think sometimes people are just interested in the work and not the artist. I'm actually interested in the people. So, sure. And generally, I, I'm a commissioning person. So, mm -hmm. I, so I like to get to know why someone makes art, what they do. So I spend a lot of time saying, so what did you do this week? And finding out about their family. Yeah. and kids and if there's an animal there great if they've got a dog that always helps with the studio visit that's great I mean I, it makes me think of conversations I've had with any number of artists about the things that lead up to that great day in studio and it usually is the the, the days weeks in the lead up yeah. how much rest you've gotten how yeah. well you've eaten what sort of social interactions yeah. you've had these can all lead to a, a more positive interaction with with yourself and with the work in the studio I mean, it's funny because I do different kinds of studio visits. So, like, there are some, like, in when you live somewhere, by the time you get to a studio visit, you often have seen quite a lot of shows of the artist's work. Yeah. Because that's what's prompted you to go and see them. So you might have seen some small shows in like small galleries, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and then you go around and you say, "I want to know more." Mm -hmm. But, but because I've been involved in the biennial world for a lot, like, so for example, I went to Karachi. I only had two days, and I had to do, I had to do back-to-back -back studio visits for two days. That's a different thing. And that's really, I think that's really horrible for artists, actually. Yeah. And it's not brilliant for me either because it's not the best way. But then, you know, I have met amazing people on those trips and been able to do great projects. So it's, it's, it's really hard. I mean, I, what I do do, what I always do, 
uh, I never go somewhere and think that I know anything. So mm-hmm. I always have an interlocutor. So I always get in touch with the person I think is the best curator there and ask them to take me on studio yeah. visits. I would never do it on my own. Or an artist, actually. Sure. And I love doing studio visits. Someone's got, a, got, got an understanding, Local knowledge. Of, the, yeah, an yeah. understanding of, the, of the area, ha- has a good sense of the pulse. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Let's talk about your curatorial approach. When I mean, you've uh, curated triennials, biennials, you've curated this platform section, shows in galleries, shows in museums. How do these different spaces or sites inform your approach? They're all different opportunities, right? So sometimes, okay, when I worked at the Hayward Gallery, it was is big. That's the thing about mm-hmm. the Hayward and. Um, the physical space. It's massive. Yeah. And so the show I did there had 382 loans. I did a very big show there. And, uh, and most of my time was spent doing shippings and plinths. Ah. Lit- literally. Yeah. And that, there was a lot of art historical work in that show. And the I support ca- mechanisms oh to, to hold the artwork in place. Labels. Yeah. Labels, yeah. Uh, 384 labels, you know, that's yeah. a lot. So, uh, so curating like that is one thing. And then when I was at the Serpentine Gallery, it was, you know, you're always part of a team. I mean, you're never right. alone. And I work together. I've, I've had the great privilege of working with brilliant colleagues, lots of great assistant curators, um, curators that I've supported by being assistant curator myself, uh, colleagues, experts, artists, etc. So the Serp- but the Serpentine is a bit smaller physically. Mm-hmm. So that was more manageable. So that would be like you know depending on the artist whether they were alive or not so if when they're not alive it's less engaging with the artist if you work with the estate that's a very different experience I like to I like to have a quite organic process I want to spend as long as possible talking to whoever it is I'm making the exhibition with before we hit the shipping because at a certain point you hit logistics and it's like okay how big is the plinth what colors the wall how, what kind of projectors do we need? And, and, and when you shift gear into production, it's like you have this moment of being very creative and then you hit production. And sure. then actually during the install, you can open up again a bit. Right. Are you considering, how much are you considering audience as, as a curator? I mean, I do a lot. I, I do a lot. It's my yeah. thing. So, so when I was at the Serpentine, I had the opportunity to work across different platforms. So I would always say that like the exhibition space is one of our platforms. But also right. we did some commissions where I would work with an artist for five years on a project where they were embedded, working together with a local community, making a very ambitious project. So the temporality of commissioning. And that's kind of why I went to do the biennial, because... Yeah. Um, you can work with artists in a very different way over longer stretches of time. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I'm really interested in what happens when you introduce an artist to a setting that's a non-art setting and ask the question of what's necessary here and what might happen. And amazing things happen in my experience. So I enjoy that. And I'm lucky in that when I was young, Mm -hmm. we had an artist in residence in my school when I was 11, David Nash, actually. And uh, I was the kind of kid that like, you know, it was just like one of those weird art kids that just <laughs> didn't have any friends. Okay. And I used to follow him around to help him. And uh, he showed us Tarkovsky films and things like that I didn't understand, but changed. Yeah, you were 11 years old. I was 11. Wow, and we, what we saw Ivan, Ivan's childhood and mirror. And also we saw um, color, color of um, pomegranates. You know, like, so I saw things that I didn't understand, but that changed everything for me. And then, um, you know, the time, it was in the 80s, um, there was a scheme where, like, 
people who are interested in art like me. Uh, mm-hmm. I got sent to art school when I was 14 on, on like Tuesday nights to do life drawing. And that, so we learned how to make roll-ups and, 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 and all of that. So I think, you know, because of that, I am 100%, I'm 2,000% committed to education and the importance of transformative potential of art and yeah. making it available to everybody, no matter where they live and no matter what kind of social background they have. This is a great area to pivot into your forthcoming role at the Queen's Museum as the incoming director. Yeah. Talk about uh, what you have in mind for when you arrive. I know that position, you, you start in a month 25th, or 25th, I start, no, I start on the 25th oh, of this month in this like month. two weeks. Oh, yeah. that's, that's great. Uh, what, I mean, what's, what's the vision? What do you, what, what's, what's coming down the road with it? I've spent my whole career trying to invent institu- different kinds of ways of building organizations, whether they're institutions or biennials or whatever, that connect people and art and, uh, and that, you know, that integrate programs as well so that there's no division within the institutions between exhibitions, education, public programs. It's all strands of programming yeah. within a kind of shared ethos and vision. Um, and I've been aware of the work of the Queen's Museum, of course, like because it's it's an institution that's been really pioneering in those areas. Absolutely. Here in New York, and quite uniquely. And I kn- I was I knew Tom Finkelpearl when I was at the Serpentine, and we were, you know, like there's not that many places in the world doing that kind of work, in my opinion, right. brilliantly. Right. And I think Queen's Museum has done it brilliantly. And I wasn't really thinking I wanted to come to New York, yeah, right? Or yeah. America. Yeah. I mean, you, you've got like a really dodgy president right it's now. It's a strange time <laughs> to come to the States. Right? <laughs> but, but, you know, I was, I'd been at the Biennial for about seven years. I was kind of, I think I, I got to a point where I'd achieved what I went there to do. And I was thinking, oh, I wonder what to do next. And then the Queen's Museum came up. And I just thought, that's my job. That's, that's. Be, it needs like what I need to do when I arrive is to work together with the team, work with them to find out what works well, what doesn't work well. Ask our stakeholders, ask artists right. what they think of the institution, and to and we will together reimagine the vision. You know, it's it's a great opportunity to do that. So I feel very privileged to have the opportunity to be the custodian of the Queen's Museum, and I will do my best to uh, to build on its legacies and histories and make it the place it's meant to be. I think Queen's Museum is a great example of, of how the community around it uh, and the people within that community um, can help inform these cultural institutions. I mean, it's such a great mirror back and forth. Looking forward to the work that you do. Yeah, there. good. Uh, let's, let's pivot to technology. Uh, you know, as I walk around and look at the work here at the fair, I can't help but notice people looking at the work for three seconds, taking a, a photograph with their phone, or maybe it's even a selfie, um, and then stepping away and walking and quickly posting it. I mean, this sort of transaction with technology and art seems to be a, a sort of an interruption from my point of view. I'm wondering how you see technology and how we consume images um, affecting things from where you stand. You're talking about the attention economy, basically. Yeah, basically, yeah, yeah. yes. So I... You know, it's weird, isn't it? I mean, I, you know, so I'm old enough to remember, and this just makes me feel old anyway, when we used to fax each other things, you yeah. know, like, uh, and I remember when I first got my modem, and I didn't know anyone else who had one, so I couldn't really send an email, but I did send someone an email, and then I rang them to say, did you get my email? <laughs> because, like, at that time, we just didn't have yeah, these yeah. kinds of tools. 
So I think on the one hand, technology has done something amazing to collapse geography and sure. to make art available and accessible yeah. to people in the world. And also, like, just like you can ha- you can make podcasts, you can make short films, you can it's available, right? And and if you go anywhere in the world, pretty much, you can do some research in advance. But an image is not an artwork. A, a photograph of a work is not an artwork. And somebody can make the most amazing looking website but be a really, really not very experienced artist. Whereas somebody who's a fantastic artist, amazing artist, might just be really, really disengaged with technology. So yeah. I am a great believer in the actual experience of looking sure. at art. Sure. And, and I, I don't know what you do about, like my nephew and niece are like, total digital natives and they cannot look unless they're looking through a phone yeah i mean that's what i'm worried about as, yeah. as a parent with young children it's something that's on my mind mm. um how do you responsibly uh manage these technologies so that they don't you know eat our brains in the way that it seems like they are i mean maybe you have to have some faith in them because i think you know I've also been to exhibitions with them and they, you know, they'll say it's boring, I hate it. And uh, that <laughs> Your niece and nephew you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And they're like, sometimes they're right, right? Yeah. Actually. Sure. I mean, they're very pers- but then, on, But then sometimes they say things that make me think, oh no, they were listening. I can have it. I can, I, you can trust them. They are people and they just have a different set of tools. And, you know, I think, you know, maybe you just have to let go of the fact that maybe we find the technology, maybe... You know, my generation finds the technology a little bit worrying, and mm-hmm. but it's just a tool for the next generation, and they will know how to dis, dis- they'll know how to use it better than us. Yeah, that's well said. What's the last great piece of culture that you experienced, or saw, or heard, or read that moved you emotionally, that dropped you to your knees, that you had this visceral response to? Does anything come to mind? I was in India and Sri Lanka over Christmas. Mm lucky me and I was quite moved not not by a single work but by um, by the endeavor of Anita Dubé who's the curator of the Kochi Biennial and she chose to work with a selection of artists which was more women than men and more radical queer voices in India than um, than they than than is easy for them to work with you know sure. like it's a difficult place and so um, Zaneli she's South African lesbian photographer black lesbian photographer who takes images of uh, women La- they printed these works large scale in the street and fly posted them around uh-huh. in Kochi in India so right? it was a public art project it was a public art project and I found it incredibly moving because it's like that's not allowed. Right. Right. And then, whilst I was in India, I don't know if you know about the right to pray. Do do you know about this? A little bit. I've read about that. Yeah. So there was this thing that happened where 60 kilometers of, no, 260 kilometers of women held hands and lined the streets in India fighting for the right to pray. Yes. And I I was there when this happened. And this was not a cultural thing. This was a political thing. But it felt like it was related somehow to the urgency to act and to make images real. And then I suppose the other thing I saw, which is like, uh, sorry to say this because it's not contemporary art, but I climbed, up a, I climbed up a cliff in Dambulla in Sri Lanka. And halfway up the cliff, they've got these 2,000-year-old cave temples. Yeah. And when you go inside, it's amazing. They've got like Buddhas in there, but they've got these incredible paintings everywhere. Like inside. They're really beautiful. And something about like, having to climb up a like cliff to get there yeah. and then you get there and there's yeah. monkeys everywhere, you know, yeah. like stealing your juice. 
uh, like then they're pickpocket monkeys but and you go in and it was like so beautiful to be in that environment so I think it was nice to have been around contemporary art and then to be seeing work that's 2,000 years old and somehow finding it just as relevant. Right. And the, the physical effort it took to get to see that, I mean, that sort of set you up for uh, yeah. an interesting sort of interaction. Exactly. Yeah. Let's shift to um, the fair as we sit in it now. Mm-hmm. We can sort of hear it in the background. You know, one of the things that I've always sort of tried to think about when I come into these spaces is how best to navigate it. You as the curator, having spent some time here, you've been giving tours to different groups. Um, what sort of tips might you have to best navigate this so that one doesn't uh, become overwhelmed or get lost both uh, physically or emotionally? I mean, the problem is, if you try and go into every booth, you cannot. Yeah. I kind of do a quick scout down, a, down, a, down an aisle, like looking left and right. And then, and then I go back and look at the things that, like, like I do a quick kind of scan. A, an efficient preview. A preview. Yeah. And then, and then I have a cup of tea. Always important. Mm-hmm. Always important to eat. Uh, and then, and then I go back and um, and find the moments that draw me in. So I get drawn by the work, really. Um, I think you cannot. I think you can't. You can't do hours and hours of it. You can only do like a short time and then you have to go away and get some fresh air. Yeah. That's my tip. Yeah. Uh, there's some real gems here. Like I was really moved this morning, actually. This is something very beautiful that I saw this morning, which was Faith, Faith Ringgold talking about her booth. And I just love her. And I was, and it was so good. She was surrounded by like a fan club. Yeah. And it's just so moving to see her get the recognition that she deserves, you know, amazing artist brilliant to see her in an art fair contract context it's about time well said well sally i feel like we've covered some great ground thank you and uh, i look forward to your work at the queen's museum and thank you for sitting down and talk with me here and uh, enjoy the rest of the fair thank you so much we've made it to the end A quick reminder that Deep Color is independently produced and a free resource for listeners. Help support and sustain this project by making a donation online at deepcolorpodcast.com. You can also learn more about each contributing artist, find links to their online portfolios, and access the archive of past recordings. Be sure to share this project within your community and subscribe and rate in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for listening and check back soon for a new episode.